What is the purpose of having a travel agent or a tour guide? Chances are you've been on a trip somewhere and you had someone instructing you what to see and what not to miss. The purpose of a travel agent or tour guide is at least to lead you through the itinerary to places that you're unfamiliar with and to help you notice things and learn about the place. I suppose the second reason would be to make your trip even more enjoyable and to avoid any problems along the way, to make it smooth. Well, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is your tour guide, we could say. If we can make that analogy, the Holy Spirit is your tour guide. But that analogy may not be exactly accurate because sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us through hardship and through pain and difficulties on purpose so that you might grow and that you might have an opportunity to minister to others. In the book of Philippians, which we're starting in today, Paul does that. Paul goes to Philippi, and it isn't a smooth and easy journey. Philippians is one of several epistles that Paul wrote while he was in a Roman prison. Paul had two Roman imprisonments, and this was written during his first Roman imprisonment. It is the classic example of the truth that our outward circumstances, what life is giving us at the moment, our outward circumstances do not need to dictate what our inward or internal condition is. Something can be going on outside of us that's pretty miserable, but we can still be rejoicing and joyful and and happy on the inside. By the grace of God, Christians can live above difficult circumstances and surroundings. And that's what this book is about. This is an epistle of joy written from the jail cell of adversity. And Paul loved this church. Matter of fact, it is often called Paul's love letter to one of his churches. He loved the church at Philippi. He wrote to them and he uses personal pronouns, I, me, my, 52 times in this letter because he had a great rapport with this church, so it was personal to him. So we want to begin our look at the book of Philippians here today, and as we often do when we start a book, I think I can probably say as we always do when we start a book, we we look at some background information that helps us understand the book better. So it's a little bit academic here as we begin this morning, but it'll lay a foundation for what's to come in the weeks ahead. First of all, the authorship of the book. Who wrote the book? Amongst Bible-believing scholars, there's almost no debate that this is the Apostle Paul. First chapter, first verse, it says, Apostle Paul and Timothy. So we know Paul wrote it, so we're not going to try and invent someone else doing that. And his authorship aligns with what we read in the book of Acts, and it's corroborated by the early church fathers. They believed and had plenty of evidence that Paul wrote this. And it's mentioned here in verse 1 as well that Timothy is part of the writing party. He probably didn't write the book, but he was a part of the evangelistic team that was with Paul when they came to Philippi. He was a part of that original team that evangelized Philippi. And we read about that in Acts chapter 16. We'll be looking at it in just a moment. That's the authorship. The second thing, the recipients of the book. Who was Paul writing to? We're not familiar as much as 
European countries are with that part of the world, so let's take a look at that. First of all, there's the city of Philippi and then the church of Philippi, so let's talk about those two areas. The city of Philippi was located on a fertile plain, on a fertile plain about nine miles northwest of the port city of Neapolis. Across the Aegean Sea, we read about Paul being in Troas, and he's tried to go to Asia, and the Spirit said no, and he tries to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit says no, you can't go there either. And Paul's a little bit, uh, I think, perplexed about what is the Spirit of God wanting him to do. And then in a dream, he has a vision of someone in Macedonia saying, come over here, come on over here and help us. And immediately, that's exactly what they do. They make plans and preparations to get over to Macedonia. It's located on a fertile plain about nine miles northwest of that port city that Paul sailed into, Neapolis, which is located on the Aegean Sea, separating what we would say is uh, Asia Minor and Greece. And remember, we call it Greece today, but in that day they called it Macedonia in the north, and they called it Acacia in the south. Okay, that's all modern day Greece. Paul sails into Neapolis, which is the port city, and then makes his way on over to Philippi. Philippi received its name, and you know this probably, from Philip the king of Macedonia. He conquered that city and renamed it after himself. He named it Philippi after himself, and he did that in 356 B.C. Some period of time later, a couple centuries later, Rome conquered that part of the world. They left the name that way, and it was still considered Philippi. And by the way, Alexander the Great is the son of Philip, the king of Macedonia. So Alexander came from a family, a military family, a ruling family, and conquered the ancient world. He was one of those world conquerors. Here's Philippi. And after Rome uh, conquered Philippi, they had built a road that went all the way from Rome across and into Asia Minor. And it's called Via Ignatia. We translate it Ignatian Way. And it was one of the main roads that went out of Rome. Rome was a great military conquering nation. We think of Rome, we think of the soldiers, we think of the legionnaires that were stationed all around the Mediterranean world, and they certainly were a great military might. They went all the way to England, all the way to Gaul and France, all the way to Spain. They conquered the world. They really did. So they had great soldiers, but in my opinion, they had even better engineers. They built waterways, the aqueducts that brought water from the mountains into Rome and various places that they conquered, and they're still being used today, 2,000 years later. They built roads, and they had a postal system, and the roads via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, is still, you could still walk on it. You can still see it today. They built things to last. They did a great job in their engineering. So they built this road, which helped their soldiers get from one place to wherever they were needed. It helped the postal system. So they conquered all around the Mediterranean world. And it really put Philippi on the map because the road led right through the ancient city of Philippi. And it became a very principal city in Macedonia or northern Greece. A large part of the population in Philippi was military. The legionnaires... That was a popular place for Roman legionnaires to retire in. 
So they had an unusually large population of, of military presence, but they also had an active duty post there in case things were out of hand in some part, you know, north or further east in Asia, they could dispatch that army of uh, soldiers and get there quickly using the roads there. So it had a large military presence. The citizens of Philippi had an unusual status in the ancient Roman world. They were considered on par with Roman citizens that lived in Rome. Because of the military presence and a large outpost of just Roman citizens that lived there, they had the same legal status as citizens in Italy. They were self-governing as a city. They were exempt from many of the Roman taxes, which became heavy at times. They dressed in Roman attire. They copied Roman architecture. You walk through the city, it looked like you were in Rome. And they dressed like Romans and used Latin as their common tongue. So it was really an outpost of Rome. And Paul uses that later in his book here. We'll see that we're an outpost of heaven. We're citizens of heaven, and he appeals to them in that way, that we're just like the city of Philippi is an outpost of Rome with all of its rights and responsibilities, Christians are an outpost of heaven. The church at Philippi, we've talked a little bit about the city, the church at Philippi was established by Paul's evangelistic team. That involved at least these four individuals that are mentioned. It was Paul and Silas, remember Paul and Barnabas split. That was the original evangelistic team, but there was a disagreement. Barnabas went one way, Paul went another. Paul had with him Paul, Silas, they picked up Timothy, and of course, Dr. Luke was with them. He traveled with Paul to patch him up, I think, but he traveled with Paul, and they're mentioned in Acts chapter 15, and we'll read about that again in a moment. Evidently, the city of Philippi did not have enough devout Jews, and some of the writers say that Jews were persecuted in Philippi, but evidently they didn't have enough devout Jews to have a synagogue. In the ancient world, if there were 10 Jewish families, they all tithed, and that was enough to hire a rabbi and to build a synagogue. But evidently, they didn't have 10 devout Jewish families, so there was no synagogue in Philippi, no teaching assembling place for the Jews to gather. So some of the Jews, as you know from the story that we just read, gathered down by the river. We're not told of others, but we know Lydia was there. They gathered down by the river, and they met for prayer. They worshiped on the Sabbath, even though they didn't have a place of worship, we would say. And the first convert was Lydia. She was a merchant, a merchant lady, and she was saved along with her household, and they immediately were baptized. They were worshiping at the river. It appears that a short time later, they were baptized there at the river. Then the second convert, after an exorcism by Paul, was this slave girl. We don't know her name. The slave girl was converted, much to the chagrin or anger of her masters, and as a result of that, Paul and Silas were beaten and then thrown into prison. And after an earthquake, the prisoners were all freed. The jailer was about to commit suicide. Paul says, nope, no one's escaped. And they call for a light. Paul deals with the jailer, and he accepts Christ as Savior. And the Bible tells us the prisoners listened to that whole conversation. 
The Philippian church was started with an unusual group of charter members, we would say. A businesswoman, a very wealthy businesswoman, a former demon-possessed gal, a jailer, and some jailees who got converted, and we don't know if they were able to attend, but maybe they did after they got out. And they loved Paul, and it was mutual. That relationship was mutual. They loved Paul. Paul loved this church, hence this letter uh, we often refer to as Paul's love letter to the church. So that's the church at Philippi. Third, the place and time of writing. When Let's kind of put it in context in, in uh, human history. As I've mentioned earlier, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. And this was his first Roman imprisonment. He had been incarcerated before at a couple of other places, but this was his first Roman imprisonment. And Paul was upbeat about it. He seemed to have great liberty in this first Roman imprisonment. People came and went and they saw him and ministered to him. And he wrote letters and, and carried on and, and actually had a ministry while he was in this first Roman imprisonment. And the fact that he was in prison seemed to cause great concern and significant burden for the Philippians because they loved him. And so they sent a man named Epaphroditus to Paul from their church. They sent Epaphroditus to Rome, which was in that day quite a journey, to minister to Paul. They brought Paul a gift, a financial gift, because in the ancient world, your family, your friends, and others had to kind of take care of you. Very likely you could starve to death and freeze to death in the wintertime. So Epaphras comes and he ministers to Paul. He brings this financial gift, utilizes the financial gift for Paul's needs, and Paul's needs were probably parchment and pen for one. He ministers to Paul, but he realizes Paul's need is much greater than what this gift is going to meet. And so Epaphroditus stays in Rome, the Bible tells us. We read about it here in the book of Philippians. Matter of fact, why don't we take a moment and look there. I'm still in Acts. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Let's start reading at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you, and this is Paul writing, send to you Epaphroditus. So Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you. And Paul thanks them for their gift, but I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my needs. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death. While he was there in Rome ministering to Paul, Epaphroditus fell sick and almost died. And the word somehow got back to the church at Philippi. And they're thinking, not only are we worried now about Paul and praying about Paul, but one of our elders, one of our leaders is, is in Rome with Paul, and he's sick, and he's probably going to die before Paul. So they were distressed about both Paul and Epaphroditus. For indeed he was sick, verse 27, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me, because he had been ministering to Paul, me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus comes, ministers to Paul, and falls sick, almost dies, but God spares him from that, so Paul sends him home. Paul sends him back to Philippi. At this imprisonment, Paul wrote the book of Philippians, but he wrote some other, what we call the prison epistles. 
you've heard that term. Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Paul wrote the book of Colossians. Paul wrote Ephesians. And Paul wrote Philemon. Those are what we call the prison epistles, the prison letters. So Paul wrote four of what we consider very important New Testament books. There aren't any that aren't important, but four important New Testament letters from prison to various churches that are scattered primarily in uh, Asia Minor. Philemon, of course, is written to a slave owner who also came to Rome. Paul led to Christ and sends him back to Philemon that he might be a minister there. So we can pretty well pin down the dates where Paul was in prison and when he wrote these letters. Almost all conservative scholars put it right around A.D. 60, maybe into the spring of A.D. 61, but between A.D. 60 and 61 is when Paul wrote his prison epistles, of which uh, the book of Philippians is one of them. So, place and time of writing. Next, the purpose of the book. Let's talk just momentarily about the purpose of the book. Paul had four human reasons for writing that God has used down through the last couple of millennium uh, in our lives. Number one, to relieve anxiety over his imprisonment. They were worried about Paul. That's why they sent the gift and sent Epaphroditus. He wrote a letter back to them and basically said, don't worry, God is using this to further the ministry of the gospel. Paul said, hey, I trust God. He's sovereign. He allowed me to come to prison and I'm leading people to Christ. I'm writing letters to the churches. This is for the furtherance of the gospel. And that's what he deals with really in chapter one. Second, to encourage unity in the church. He deals with that in chapter two. There was, surprise, surprise, some disunity in the church. And he names those individuals. Synecdoche and uh, we like to say Suntachi and Odious. Uh, it's kind of a transliteration of their name. Suntachi and Odious, these two ladies that were sparring with one another. They were, there was some fighting going on and it was influencing the church. So Paul writes to those two ladies in this letter and says, get along. You're hurting the testimony of the church. So to encourage unity is the second reason. The third one is to warn them about the deceit and the heresy of the Judaizers. Paul had to deal with this multiple times. So in chapter 3, he explains what's wrong with the Judaizers and don't fall for their deceitful teaching. He deals extensively with that in the book of Galatians, as you know, and a little bit as well in the book of Corinthians as well. Number four he writes to them, finally, to thank them for their financial support. He deals with that in chapter 4. Uh, he's appreciative of their love for him, their gift to him, sending Epaphroditus to help him, and so he expresses his appreciation. Those are the four, we would say, main purposes of the book. Let's look at the background of the book. Open your Bibles, back up, Acts chapter 16, where Pastor Zach read a few minutes ago, and let's understand kind of what took place at the planting of this church. Acts chapter 16, and we'll read some of these verses, starting at verse 6, or starting a little earlier than we started a few moments ago. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, talking about the evangelistic team, they were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, which we refer to as Turkey today or Asia Minor. Paul wanted to go 
everywhere and preach the gospel. But the Holy Spirit says no. And truthfully, that's to our benefit. He goes to Europe instead of to Asia, and we're the recipients of that. After they had come to Mysia, and they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, a, a port city. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood in his dream and pleaded with him, saying, Come, come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us spiritually is uh, understood here. Now, after he had seen the vision, wakes up the next day, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's step through the background of this. First of all, the call to Macedonia. This is Paul's second missionary journey. You've got maps in the back of your Bible. You can see Paul's missionary journey. It didn't go as far west as the second and third missionary journey. It was more of a local journey, we would say. But this is now Paul's second missionary journey. And while he was on that missionary journey, which took place somewhere A.D. 50 to 52, so about two years, Paul was on this journey. And Paul desired to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbid him and his companions. Now, we wouldn't say the Holy Spirit ever does that with us today. He has to encourage us to preach the gospel, to share the gospel. But he forbid Paul to start heading into Asia Minor. And so Paul, along with his companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, were not going to go to Asia, it says in verse 6. And he didn't allow them to go to Bithynia in verse 7. Being unsure of what God wanted him to do, what does Paul do? He goes sightseeing. No, he doesn't. It doesn't say Paul's walking around Troas doing sightseeing. He might have saw something, but he's, they're in prayer. They're seeking God's will. They're saying, God, what would you have us to do? Where do you want us to go? And when we pray, God leads. When we ask God for direction, he will give it to us. He had stopped them a couple of times, but they're praying while they're in Troas, asking God what to do, verse 8. And they waited for God to direct them, and he does. The reading of Scripture appears that after they're praying, immediately that night, Paul has a vision. We know in the New Testament times, before they had a completed revelation, oftentimes God gave Peter a vision. God gave Paul multiple visions. God would speak to them in their sleep in a vision, a very clear uh, direction on what to do. So he receives this vision of a man from Macedonia saying in verse 9, come over and help us. That's all that Paul needed. It wasn't a lot of specifics in that other than here's a man and here's a man in Macedonia saying we need spiritual help and that's all it was required of Paul. Matter of fact, the Bible says in the next verse, look at verse 10. The team immediately. So Paul wakes up and says, start packing your bags, guys, immediately. And then verse 11 says, and the next day, the next day. So we get the sense that there was no procrastination. It was a desire to obey God and to obey him now. And by the way, that's one of the secrets of the Christian life is to obey every prompting of the Holy Spirit as he directs us. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to speak with someone, to do something, 
to obey something that you've read and understood from the Word of God. The secret to the successful Christian life is to say, God, I get it. I see what you're saying. I will obey. It's truth and obedience. Pastor Zach talked about just a, a little bit earlier about worship. Truth is what God reveals, and our response is obedience. Holy Spirit prompts Paul. He and the group immediately respond. So the call to Macedonia in verses 6 through 10. Look at verses 11 through 13. The conversion of Lydia. Conversion of Lydia. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city or chief city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and we spoke to the, woman, to the women who were meeting there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. Most of you know that purple was the color of royalty, and it was removed from a mollusk in the sea, and it was uh, hard to obtain and very costly. So that dye that they obtained from this mollusk was very expensive, and they made a huge profit on it. So she was a very successful businesswoman who dealt in purple dye, clo uh, clothing dye uh, that was often used with royalty or the, or the very wealthy, who was from the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul, the conversion of Lydia. Luke informs us that the evangelistic team traveled into Neapolis, and then they finally arrived at the city of Philippi. We assume that the Holy Spirit was leading them because they didn't stay in Neapolis. They didn't stay in Samothrace either, but they made their way to Philippi. Thessalonica was the capital of northern Greece or Macedonia, as they called it in that day. So they didn't go to the capital city, Thessalonica. They go to Philippi, a chief city, a very large financial, and as we talked about earlier, city outpost from Rome. So the Holy Spirit leads them there to this main city in the region of Macedonia. And undoubtedly, they rested after a, that significant journey. They rested and no doubt, they probably walked around the city. They walked around the city of Philippi. Paul usually did what? He would usually go to the synagogue. And he would preach to the Jews that gathered there on the Sabbath. But there was no synagogue. There was no jumping off place for Paul. As often he would preach there. Maybe some would come back the following week, and he'd, because he was a very well-known and respected rabbi, he'd have the opportunity to preach again. Sometimes they drove him out of town, or they wouldn't allow him to preach again at the synagogue. But there was no synagogue. So in their walking around, they figured there must be some Jews here. And sure enough, as they were led by God and using some common sense, I would think we would say, they found where the small gathering of Jews met and they gathered down by the river for prayer and some worship of the Lord. So as Paul sought the Lord, God led him in contact with Lydia, who was a worshiper of God, the Bible tells us. 
And I think there's some application here. I'm trying to make some even though we're going through introductory material. If we ask God to give us opportunities to share the gospel, he will lead us to people who are looking. I've often said to people, if you're the first one saved out of your family, like I was, I made the mistake of trying to take on my whole family. You know, I'd go back for some holiday or something. Everybody would say, well, you're a Christian. We know what you used to live like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you'd be firing questions off at you. And I learned that's never effective. It just seemed to, you never have any success. Ask God to lead you to the person in your family that is going to be the most receptive to the gospel by themselves. Instead of trying to take on the whole crowd, ask God to lead you to the person, maybe at your workplace or maybe in your neighborhood or maybe in some other context, the most uh, receptive person, and then ask him, hey, can I share with you how God has changed my life? I think you've heard me say, Paul shares his personal testimony five times in the book of Acts. Paul shares how he came to Christ. And a personal story has wonderful power. It's a personal interest story. And Paul used that method many times as he preached. It was the launching pad for Paul. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Find the most receptive person. Share your testimony. And if they don't accept Christ then, and they probably won't, maybe at the first hearing of the gospel, but just say, listen, if you've got further questions about the Christian life or what it means to be born again, I'm ready. I'm anxious to talk with you more about this. I'm not an expert in the Bible, but I'm a Bible student, and I, I believe I can help you with your questions. Paul was led of the Holy Spirit, and God led him to Lydia. She was a seller of purple, as we mentioned. It's interesting. She's at the top of the socioeconomic scale or ladder in Philippi, and the slave girl is at the bottom, and the jailed people are at the bottom. So here's a cross-section of the church, and God's going to add to that, but we have somebody at the very top of the socioeconomic ladder who could probably meet some of the needs of those who are not so financially successful and those that are at the bottom. God wants all stripes in the church. I think a church should represent really the area that they're in, but it's certainly wonderful if we have every color and every background and every former denomination or whatever in the church. It makes for a wonderful worship experience. The Bible tells us that she was a worshiper of God. In other words, she was a monotheist. We don't know where she was on the scale of Judaism. I, I don't think I would say I know. But she hadn't converted evidently full on to Judaism. But she believed that there was only one God. She wasn't a pagan believing in polytheism, many different gods. So she believed that the Jews had it right, that there was only one God. But maybe she hadn't been converted to Judaism because there was no synagogue there. Paul zeroes in on her. She's ripe fruit. She's low-hanging fruit. Paul is being led by God, and Lydia is being prepared by God. And that's, that's what we read here in these verses. It says in verse 14, she was a seller of purple from Thyatira who worshiped God, not in full understanding, 
but she was worshiping God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Here is Paul asking God for direction, and here is Lydia, a sincere seeker, and God leads them together. It's God that's doing it. God prepares the heart, and God prepares the messenger. And we have to believe that, and we have to operate on that. That if we're prepared to share the gospel, there's somebody prepared to hear it from us. In this case, it was Lydia. And she accepts Christ, and her eyes are open. And uh, even though she was successful, she didn't worship her money. She was worshiping God. And she, now she really worships God in truth and spirit. The Bible says she and her whole household were converted and they were baptized. And she insists that Paul and the evangelistic team stay in her house. So there is the conversion of Lydia. Let's read about the confrontation with the soothsayer in verses 16 through 23. A little longer conversion story. There are three conversion stories in this chapter. Three wonderful conversion stories. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer... The certain slave girl possessed with the demon of divination met us. So there's different kinds of demons and different kinds of power used by Satan in different ways. She had the spirit dwelling in her, an evil spirit, a dark spirit that gave her the ability to do some kind of divination to predict the future. She was a soothsayer, a future predictor. Met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, this is Luke writing here, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God. Now, is that correct? Absolutely, that's correct. These are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Is that correct? Absolutely. So here's a demon-possessed girl telling people the truth. What's the problem? And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, greatly disturbed is the idea, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out at that very hour. And then her master saw their hope of profit was gone. Evidently her countenance was changed or she was in her right mind or something. They immediately saw that she was changed. They seized Paul and Silas, drugged them to the marketplace and to the authorities, and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, which were persecuted evidently in that city, very rare, they didn't stick around long, being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, not the magistrates' clothes, but Paul and Silas' clothes, and commanded them that they would be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the confrontation with the soothsayer. What the possessed girl said was true. But the fact that she was possessed by an evil spirit, that she was a, a worshiper of false deities, and everyone knew that because her masters had gained great profit from her work, her soothsaying ability, fortune-telling ability. Everybody knew that she was demon-possessed and that she was a worshiper of false deities, and now she opened her heart after Paul cast the demons out of her, her opened her heart to the Lord. So 
it was confusing. That's why Paul brought it into it. Here Paul is preaching about Jehovah God, and she worshiped these false gods, and she had this power by Satan, and people were confused. The, the hearers are being confused by what Paul is preaching, and here is this echo, this uh, exhorter coming behind them who worships false deities and is possessed by the devil or demons. So Paul had had enough of that. It was greatly annoying or he was greatly bothered by it because it was confusing the people of Philippi. And so he commands the demon to leave her and uh, he does, he has to. And by the way, she wasn't the enemy. The demon-possessed girl, Paul didn't treat her as the enemy. He treated her as a pawn of the enemy, a captive of the enemy, which was, of course, Satan. And Paul commands the demon to release her, and in doing so, her powers of divination are gone, which greatly exercised her masters. And her owners brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates and made serious accusations against them, which, by the way, were not necessarily true at all. They were making accusations that they were upsetting the town. And they were breaking laws. All Paul had done was pray with Lydia and cast the demon out of the demon-possessed girl. They weren't breaking laws. All the accusations were political or maybe religious in nature, but their real interest was financial in nature. Their real interest was the fact that they've lost a very profitable means of income through this woman having the demon cast out of her. They didn't care at all about this girl. They didn't care at all about her health or well-being at all. They, they were simply using her as a tool for making money. And now they were upset that this money-making tool was, was different than before. And that's what really brought on the anger. So they're brought before the magistrates. Serious accusations are made, political and religious in nature. And the missionaries were beaten without a hearing or without a trial and cast into prison. That brings us to the third convert, the conversion of the jailer. Let's begin reading again at verse 24. Having received such a charge, the jailer, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing him to God. And the prisoners were listening. And in the original, it's the idea that they were listening intently. They were listening to every word that Paul and Silas were either praying or singing. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake, came from God, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. They fell out of the wall or off their hands. And the keeper of the prison awakened from his sleep, evidently lived uh, in the prison or near to it. And seeing the prison doors open, supposed that the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to fall upon him, uh, his sword and kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And he called for a light and ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Somewhere along the line, he had heard the message of salvation. Either as Paul and Silas were singing and praying, or 
He had heard it from the news that had gathered about others that had been saved as a result of the team, but he knew something because he says, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in all your house. Then they spoke the word to him. They elaborated on that message that is recorded in verse 31. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his household. And he took them the same night and he washed them up. And then he was baptized as well, early morning baptism. So let's talk just briefly about that. After being cruelly beaten with rods, I wouldn't want to be beaten with rods or a cat of nine tail, but beaten with rods I would think would be more likely to break bones. Maybe cat of nine tails strip the flesh, but obviously Paul and Silas were greatly bruised, if not cracked ribs and other things. So after being beaten with rods and charged with the jailer, to keep close attention to these two prisoners, he takes them into the inner prison, and he not just takes them there, he puts them in stocks. We all can picture that. Their feet are in stocks, their hands are in chains. We would call it maximum security today. He takes them to the inner prison, puts them in maximum security, so there's no hope of them escaping. Paul and Silas begin singing, verse 25. Now, that's an incredible verse. Here they are, they've been beaten, thrown into prison, inner prison, They're in stocks, and what do they do? They sing and they pray, which is an incredible thought that after what they have endured, that they're carrying on this way. And the Bible says the prisoners were listening with interest. They were listening closely is the idea. They were hanging on every word. They'd heard a variety of exclamations come from the prison, and especially from maximum security prison. They'd heard all kinds of shouting and words that come from there, but they had never heard singing and praying come from there. And it impacted them. How we respond to our trials maybe does more to a watching world, a lost world, than maybe any other thing. Maybe it's our strongest witness. And we feel persecuted about awkward stares when we pray in public. We feel like we're persecuted. Or where someone says, no, I'm not interested in your religion, and they reject a track or a witness. We feel like we're persecuted. This is real persecution. This is Bible persecution. So what does God do? God sends an earthquake. He opens the prison doors. We would think maybe a couple of doors, not like every prison has a cell like we think of today, bars of iron opening and closing. There's probably just a couple of doors. The earthquake removes the doors. They fall on their hinges or whatever, and the earthquake rattles all the chains loose and so here are all the prisoners the doors are open and they're not chained to the wall anymore and the jailer's thinking one thing prisoners escape rome kills me rome maybe kills my family because i've neglected my duty i've been a dereliction of duty so he's about to commit suicide and paul says wait a minute No one's escaped. That tells you that the prisoners were somewhat spellbound by the praying, the singing, and then the follow-up of the earthquake. That They realized something different has happened in the prison today. This is of God. They don't run away. Prisoners tend to run away. They don't run away. They want to hear more. And so Paul 
communicates the gospel to the jailer and they're listening to that. And no doubt some of them accepted Christ as their savior as well. The jailer takes Paul out, cleans up his wounds. Paul communicates the gospel to the rest of his family and his whole household gets saved. We don't know how many of that is, but the whole household gets saved and gets baptized as well. After an early morning baptism, the magistrates come. We didn't read that, but the magistrates that beat them and threw them in the prison come and realize we've made a major mistake. And they're offering mea culpas. Uh, they're offering their apologies to Paul. They lack sufficient evidence for any punishment or incarceration. And then they find out, as we read on in the story, that Paul and Silas are both Roman citizens, which it was against the law to incarcerate or to beat a Roman citizen unless there had been trial and a conviction by a judge or a jury of their peer. So the magistrates had broken Roman law. And they said, please leave our town. Paul says, wait a minute. After how you've treated us, we're not leaving town until you make basically a public apology. You make a public apology. Now, was Paul just asking for a, you know, a pound of flesh from these guys? Paul had suffered before, and he was ready to suffer the, for the gospel. Paul was wanting them to make this public apology so all of Philippi would know that this church plant, jailer, soothsayer, former soothsayer, Lydia, the seller of purple, were on solid footing, that they were on solid ground. They had treated them unlawfully, but Paul insisted on correcting this thing publicly to give legitimacy and to give protection to this new church plant. He was so concerned about himself, the shame that he had endured, or the affliction that he had endured, he was concerned about the church, that it would be able to go forward, and it does. We're out of time. When we consider how God was able to redirect and interrupt Paul's life, interrupt and then redirect Paul's plans, we have to stop and think, does God have that same liberty with us? Do we keep an ear to the ground or maybe an ear to the Bible and listening to the Holy Spirit so sensitively that God can stop us in our plans and redirect us in our plan and even redirect our life? Maybe God wants you to do something different for him in the future than you're doing right now. And the question is, are we willing to follow the Spirit's direction? Are we asking him to direct us when he closes certain doors and we say, okay, God, you close that door, open the next door, but I'm going to serve you, so direct me, please. Do you submit your plans to God? You just say, well, this is what I got planned. This is what I'm doing. You really don't pray about it. You really don't think about it in terms of how can I best serve God? I've been pastor here for a long time, as you know, 38 years. And there have been several times where people said, Pastor, I moved away. My wife and I moved away. You know, we've retired. We moved away. And after we got there, we realized there was no good church around. Someone just came back and visited us and said, Pastor, I visited multiple churches and I can't find a church that preaches the Bible. So do you consider where God wants you to go? Nothing wrong with, with retiring or moving closer to family or whatever it might be, but ask God to direct you. 
Maybe you're at a career choice in your mind and in your life. Ask God to direct you. How can your life be used for maximum purpose in light of eternity? Maximum value in light of eternity. And then the last thought, are you willing to suffer hardships? None of us like to suffer. But there's something about the crucible of suffering that, that just captures people's attention who are unsaved, who are lost. When they see people suffering for the truth of the gospel, for what they believe in according to the Bible, people watch that and they say, that's real. That's real in their life. And they're willing to endure hardship for what they believe in. i got to find out more. And that happened here. And it can happen today. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you today, we realize that you're still using people to bring other people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. You use us. You want to use us in the context of where you've placed us to bring other people to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And sometimes we realize you redirect people. You call people to move. You call people to even move to the mission field or to take up a job in their vocation in some place that there is not a strong gospel witness. Lord, we pray that for our church. We pray that for our congregation. We pray that for our young people. They might consider serving God in some place where the gospel witness is not very bright, not very strong. So help us to be missionaries, if not vocationally, but in heart. We would pray in Jesus' name, amen.